Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey there, Jets fans. Welcome back to episode 42 of the Jet Centric Podcast. We're still here. Anyhow, this is AJ, one of your hosts, and I'm not going to talk too much because um, I usually do. Uh, anyhow, in this episode, we have Alistair Mowat, the nicest of the Jet Centric people, interviewing Leah Hextall. And it's a great interview, and I won't tell you what's all in it. You'll have to listen to find out. So thanks so much to those two for doing it. And uh, I really enjoyed listening to it. I'm sure you will as well. Here you go. Welcome back, Jets fans, to the Jet-Centric Podcast. This is Alistair Mott. I'll be your host for the evening. I'm joined by Leah Hexall. Leah, how are you doing? I'm great, Alistair. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the pleasure is all ours. Uh, all right, so for our listeners uh, who might not be aware, uh, the, the Hexall family is quite an NHL dynasty. Uh, would you be willing to give us a quick family history? Absolutely. Uh, for us, it all started with my grandfather, Brian Hextall. Uh, so he's obviously my dad's dad. And back in the 1940s, he played with the New York Rangers. He's actually a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. He went in with the Rangers because he won the Cup in 1940 with them. He was a winger. He actually led the NHL in scoring for a few seasons. And he was one of the first wingers to play his off wing back in the day. But I think really his legacy with the Rangers stems from when they won the Cup because, one, he scored the overtime winner against the Toronto Maple Leafs to seal the Cup victory. And then he also had a hat trick in one of a very pivotal game within the series. So when you go to New York, as I have when I've worked, I went and actually did a Rangers game for Hockey Night in Canada against the Calgary Flames. And I was at MSG, and I couldn't believe that some of the ushers were still walking up to me because they'd been around for so long, and they said, we remember your grandfather. So it was pretty spectacular to have that experience. But then from there, I have two uncles who played in the game, my uncle Brian Sr., or Brian Jr., pardon me, and that is Ron's dad, and obviously Ron played for the Flyers as a goaltender and then was a general manager up until recently. <laughs> and then also my uncle Denny, and he played with the Minnesota North Star, and the Detroit Red Wings, he's still very heavily involved with the Red Wings. Um, so we have three generations that have played in the NHL. And I do have to mention my dad, Randy, um, because my dad played in the Manitoba Junior Hockey League with the Portage Terriers, and they won the Centennial Cup back in his day, which would now be the RBC Cup. And my dad's actually a member of the Manitoba Hockey Hall of Fame and Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame with the Terriers. So I always like to throw him in because I always say my dad, uh, he's a pretty slight guy. He's only 5'10 and fairly thin, but he was a goal scorer and he could skate. And I always think if he would have been a player today, he probably would have made the NHL. But back in the day, it was a different time in the 70s, as we know. And uh, he went to a few training camps, one with St. Louis, but never quite cracked it. And uh, he, he he didn't make it once. And his dad, who's a Hall of Famer, said, well, you didn't make it, so you got to go find a job. Whereas now, as we know in today's NHL, there's the AHL and the ECHL and their systems. So it's a very different time. And I always wonder what my dad could have been uh, if he maybe was playing at a different time period. Wow. Uh I bet he probably could have uh, found some room on the uh, Winnipeg Jets. I think we'd uh, be he might have been able to. Yeah. yeah, he might have been able to. And he was—he uh, wasn't a big guy, but he wasn't afraid to get into the corners. Uh, he always, though, so he had very tough line mates when he played with the Terriers. And he said, "I used to start the fights, and I had other guys who would come in and finish them for me." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, you yourself. Um, 
I understand you have a diploma in broadcasting from uh, the Columbia Academy, is that right? I do. It's uh, Columbia Academy. It was a school out in Vancouver. So I went and took my diploma out there for broadcasting when I was in my early 20s. And that was after a couple years of taking university and not really enjoying it at all. And then taking some time off to work and kind of putting two of my loves together and deciding that I wanted to go into broadcasting. Oh, fantastic. So would you say it was an interest in hockey that really led you to broadcasting? Or was it an interest in broadcasting that kind of took you towards hockey? I think it was the fact of the way that I was brought up. For my personality when I was growing up, I played a lot of sports. I come from an athletic family, and my sister and I were heavily involved in athletics growing up. But the other side of my personality, and I am a Gemini, so they say that you have two sides because you're twins, that's Mm -hmm. a symbol, is um, the arts. And it was something that a lot of people don't know about me, but, um, you know, I've always been in plays. I sing. I'm classically trained in piano. Um, You know, it's one of those things where I've always loved the arts as well. So, really, I'm very fortunate that I had two parents that always said to my sister and I, do something you love, do something you would do for free. And originally, when I went to university, I thought I was going to become a lawyer, Um, And I think like so many young people, you pick something that you think, oh, that sounds good. But when you actually get into it, you realize this is not what my passion is. And so I was fortunate that when I decided to step away from my education in that way, and I told my parents that, you know, really what I wanted to do is there was a big part of me that, you know, I, in grade 12, I was the main character in our musical, school musical, and, you know, you're singing, you're acting, and, you know, I had actually given up some of my sports that year to do that, and it was really, I couldn't believe how much I loved it. I loved every second of it, and it really fueled me, and being on stage, there was nothing like it. So when you add in the fact that I love sports is the way that I do, it just married itself together so well. But when I was growing up, I used to watch Barbara Walters all the time on 2020, and I used to say I want to be Barbara Walters. So I think it was more so my love of wanting to do that, to be a broadcaster, a journalist, as I would have said back in the day, that led me to it. But then when I got into it, um, because I did love sports and I loved what sports had done for me as a person uh, just growing up, that I really decided that that was the way I wanted to go. Uh, That's fascinating. You're quite the Renaissance person. uh, (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, I won't give myself that much credit, but... (laughs) Well, uh, actually, on that note, um, you know, for my money, you're one of the best interviewers in the business. Um, I, I have to say I particularly enjoyed your chats with Paul Maurice and Brendan Lemieux for The Athletic uh, this earlier this season. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about uh, your process for interviews. Would you care to take us through how you prepare? Uh, sure. I think, um, I think, Alistair, for me, I love doing a one-on-one interview. It is my favorite thing within my job. But there are different types of interviews. Um, There are the kinds where you are ringside and you only have about a minute, and that includes your questions and the answers. There are more sit-down interviews, which you have the opportunity to perhaps be more in-depth in your questions and more in depth in your piece. And then there's a type of interview where you are hosting a hockey game in studio and you're doing pre-games and intermissions and you're really interviewing your analysts to get the best information out of them and also the best entertainment for your audience. And when I go into an interview, um, you reference my interviews uh, with The Athletic, and that's the type of interview where it's, I find to be a little easier 
because the camera changes everything when it comes to interviewing. People realize that they're being interviewed, and it's very hard to ignore the fact that there's this camera sitting there, that there's light, that there's not just you and your subject, whereas when you do an interview for a written format, it's just you and them, and it's very intimate, and they tend to be more open with you, I find. So the results of a written piece can, to me, since I've started doing them, it, it's so different. So I really find doing TV, it's a challenge because you have to make people comfortable with you. But when I go into the interview process, it's really simple for me, and it's something that has changed a lot over my career. The more simple your questions are, the better the interview is going to be. I think when I was younger, and I see a lot of journalists do this, if I wanted to ask the question to a player, why is the power play so good? I would have started that question by saying, so your power play is the first ranked in the National Hockey League, you're six for seven in your last three games, why is it working? The question would have came after multiple facts, and those facts do nothing for the question or for the answer you're going to receive. It's often us as journalists trying to show that we know what we're talking about. So one of the things that happened for me when I went to Hockey Night in Canada is I worked with an incredible coach, a broadcast coach that they brought in named Bob Babinski. And he absolutely changed the way I do my job. And now when I ask a question, I feel some of the best questions are, why? How did that impact you? What happened there? If you can't do a question within eight words, then you have an issue. So that's the standard that I go by. And the second part of it is I do a lot of research. And when I say research, I Google everybody I speak to because you can always find interesting articles. I was doing a, a CHL game for Sportsnet in Moose Jaw not so long ago. And on the Lethbridge Hurricanes, there's this great young player named Dylan Cousins. And he is going to be one of the top draft picks this year or projected to be. And I Googled him and I found out that he's from Alaska and his dad's a judge. And when he was young, he didn't like to skate, he just wanted to play hockey. But his dad wanted him to be a better skater. So he would take him to public skate, where you can't have a hockey stick, and he would bribe him with Smarties in order to skate. So when I did my interview with him, ringside, I asked him about that. I said, so Dylan, you're a tremendous skater. How did you learn to be such a great skater? And he told that story naturally about the Smarties. And I pulled a pack of Smarties out of my pocket, and I said, you score a goal, I'll give you these. And his little face just lit up because I had done my research. And so I think it's really important. I reach out to scouts. I reach out to junior coaches. I reach out to other players who have played. I utilize the network I have to find out information. Um, and I think, you know, you don't – that's one thing, again, when I was young – I kind of look at, you know, a stat sheet to get ready for an interview. Now I look at the human side to get ready for an interview because there is nothing more boring in this world than numbers. And that's something that John Shannon taught me at Hockey Night. And he said, when I see people throwing out too many stats, they either haven't done their research or they don't know what they're talking about because people don't remember numbers. They remember stories. And that was a beautiful piece of advice from him. And even the way we use numbers in a broadcast, you'll hear a lot of people say they're 8-1-1 one, and one in their last 10 games. We'll flip that around. They have one loss in their last 10 games. So there's less numbers, and it's a more effective way of presenting the information. So when I interview someone, I'm always thinking, what's the most effective question to get the best answer? And usually the most effective questions 
are very short and very direct and to the point. And that leads into better answers in my, uh, in my experience. Oh, it's clearly working. Uh, <laughs> you do an extremely impressive job of it. Uh, but I'm curious, though, because uh, obviously interviews and play-by-play are, are rather different. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if a similar uh, course of research goes into prepping for a play-by-play game. Uh, there's a lot more research that goes into prepping for a play-by-play game. Uh, Ever since I started doing it, I've realized, um, I I knew this before, but I think I know this even more so now, is that the play-by-play role is the hardest thing we can do in broadcast. And the reason why is because you are so... You are so in the game. You are just cemented to it. And you can't just know a little bit about each team. You have to know things about every single player, every single coach, the trainer, the referees, the GMs, the scouts. Because at any time, the game is going to dictate that you may have to talk about these people. So the amount of research is not just learning the numbers to name and not just little facts about, oh, they're leading the team in scoring. You have to be able to tell stories and need to have little tidbits and nuggets about every single person that's involved in that game, right down to the arena that they're playing in. You know, little facts about how long it's been there, when it was built, what the fans are like in it. Because the fans could become part of the storyline. And that's, I think, what's so hard about play-by-play is that you are at the mercy of the game. The game is a star. It will dictate to you how it's going to go, and you just have to do your very best to be as prepared as possible in order to flow with the game. All right. And uh, I I have uh, one question about uh, the kind of nitty-gritty of when you're calling the game, like, during the process of, like, during the broadcast while the play is happening. Uh, do you find yourself relying on stock phrases to describe specific events, or is that something that a play-by-play analyst should try to avoid? I think for me, I, I've i never thought about it in that way. I don't have something that I always say. I don't, I don't know if I've been doing it long enough, quite frankly, to have kind of stock phrases built up. There's a certain language that goes along with doing play-by-play, and for me right now, the That's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build that language because it's not the type of language I've used in my other roles as a broadcaster. And what I mean by that is hockey is pretty much the same plays over and over and over again. It's in this end, they're, you know, working the puck down low. Well, how do you describe that? 10 different ways because that's going to happen probably 40 times in a hockey game. So there is language in that way that is used by, I believe, everyone who does it. But when it comes to, say, if a goal is scored, and I know that there's some people who have, they do big celebrations and catchphrases, I don't think I'll ever be that person. I think that for me, it's what I feel in that moment and where the game is at, which leads to my expression within it. And so I um, it's not that I'm trying to stay away from it. It's just not something that I see just being a natural part of my call. Awesome. Uh, and sorry, just, just to kind of build on that, um, I'm, I'm wondering how, how do you build that lexicon of <laughs> play-by-play? Like what's, what's your method for, for developing that? 
the only way you can do it, Alistair, is through repetition. It really is. And for me, the challenge, that is the challenge, is that it's very hard to get reps because there's only a certain amount of games right now. For myself, I started doing play-by-play last year, and I've been working with Sportsnet, the Canadian Women's Hockey League. Well, unfortunately and fortunately, they have a four-game package. It's fortunate that we, that they as a network are utilizing their platform to showcase the women's game, which is excellent. It's unfortunate that it's only four games out of a whole season, but that's unfortunately the nature of where we are right now. But that being said, four games spread apart over, say, a three-month, four-month period, um, it's very hard to feel like you have that natural repetition. So when you do get those reps, you try to do the best you can. But to build the language for me, it's all about I go to Manitoba Moose games and I practice at those games. I'm up in the press box and I'm in an empty booth, and they're kind enough to allow me just to – I stand there and I call the games. And that's just how I learn the language and how I learn my flow. And it really has helped me. But there's no better way to do it because you can simulate games, but there's nothing better than a real game. So it's all about reps. It's the only way you can learn, and it's the only way you can get better. And that is kind of how it is with most most things in life. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, just like uh, in music or in theater, you, you, you want to rehearse it the way you're going to perform it. Uh, I think is uh, pretty standard. Absolutely, or even yeah. just as an athlete. I mean, how many times do you practice a, a play to perfect it before it works perfectly? Mm-hmm. There's so many repetitions in order to do that. Ooh, well, um, speaking of uh, getting the reps in, uh, I know you called the Clarkson Cup last year. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that experience? Sure. It was a fantastic experience. I mean, for a lot of play-by-play people, you can do it for 20 years and never get a chance to call a championship game. And there is a difference when you walk into whether it's a playoff game or a championship game. It's um, it's a totally different beast because there's so much on the line. So for me, calling the Carson Cup was such a gift because – you knew that these two teams and what they've been through, and it took an entire season to earn their place there, and you're calling a game that means so much to everyone involved in it, including the fans that are in the stands. And for me, it was brilliant because we had such a good hockey game. It ended up being 1-1, went to overtime, and, you know, had a great goal by Laura Stacy of the Markham Thunder to seal it. So it was just so much drama. And it's interesting because, um, I have uh, someone who's a mentor of mine, and his name happens to be Doc Emmerich, and that's a very um, well-known name by most hockey people. Uh, he's a Hall of Fame announcer for NBC Sports, and I'm I'm very fortunate to have his guidance. But when I went into the game, because Doc has obviously called so many Stanley Cups, which is the biggest thing you can call it. He's also called Olympics. So you think about gold medal games, Stanley Cups. And I said to him, do you think of how you're going to call that goal, the winning goal, if it comes down to a winning goal, such as in overtime, do you have something on standby that you're going to say? And he said to me that he never does that. He says he always just goes with what happens in that moment. So I was very particular that I didn't have a call for when that goal came. And then here it is. I know what the game-winning goal is going to be, which you don't always know in a championship game if it ends up being three to one. You know, it's that second goal. But you don't know that at the time. But I knew that the next goal was for the Clarkson Cup, which was the Stanley Cup for women's hockey. So, you know, for me, I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, I gave it a little bit of thought in between, uh, you know, regulation and overtime starting. But I just – 
I was like, okay, well, what could I say here, depending if what team wins? And for the Kuman Red Stars, they were an expansion team from China. It was their first year in the league, so I thought maybe I could play off something about that. And then for Markham, it was the third time as a franchise they'd been to the Clarkson Cup, but they hadn't won the championship yet. So when they did win it and Laura Stacey scored that goal after I gave it the breath, and the players come out, and they maul each other, and the celebration's going off, I said, you know, I played into that, and I said, three times does prove to be the charm for Markham. So it just came to me off of my preparation that I had done. And with Kuman, I, I, I wonder what I would say, say but I, I probably would have said something like um, the Clarkson Cup, you know, book it a ticket, it's heading overseas, as the Kuman Red Stars are your Clarkson Cup champion. Something along that line, I think, would have came out. So you don't, I didn't have anything set in stone for it, but I definitely put a little bit of thought into it because I thought the last thing you want to do is blow a call in the, in a championship <laughs> game. So, um, I was really nervous going into overtime. I even said that on air. I said, you know, I'm nervous right now because I was just so happy that I, I recognized that the goal happened off a turnover and it happened really quick. And I was just so happy that I knew what players had scored it. <laughs> and sometimes when there's a bunch of players, it happens so quick, you can't see the number and you miss it. Um, so I was just so thrilled that I knew the player's name to call. So it was, uh, it was an incredible experience. I have to say I was very emotional after it uh, with Cassie Campbell-Pascal, who's my color person in the booth, who I'm so fortunate to work with because she's sensational and she's so giving of herself. Um, but I was, uh, I was pretty um, – I have to say I was pretty uh, – emotional after that game because uh, it was uh, it was just so much fun to call. Oh, absolutely. I, I can only imagine. Um, but I, I, it's obvious from talking to you how passionate you are about, you know, not just hockey, but the women's game in particular. Um, of course, we just had uh, the, the NHL All-Star game just a couple weeks ago. Uh, do you have any comments you'd like to make on what impacts that might have on the women's game? Well, I think that it only was good coming out of that. I loved seeing the ladies, and two of them played in the CWHL, um, you know, Brianna Decker and Rebecca Johnson. And, um, you know, it was interesting to me uh, how people were kind of shocked that Kendall was as fast as she was, Kendall Coyne, uh, mm-hmm. because the women can skate. I think that's the perfect place for them to be to showcase it because it's a skills competition. And one, I think the skill competition does need a little bit of revamping. I think it's starting to get a little stale, and I think the NHL recognizes that, and this is one way to bring in a different element. Um, the attention that it got just shows why the game needs to be a part of the NHL, why, as Gary Bettman has said, he will not bring the NHL into it until there's only one women's league. Right now there's the CWHL and the NWHL in the state. And they are working on how to do that, how to bring the game together in one league. But as you know, it's a business on both sides, so you can't just – it doesn't happen overnight. But the players agree that it's time for one league because that's the only way the NHL is going to get involved. And Batman has stated that time and time again, and he's right. He's not going to go into this to be in competition with someone else. But the game, the women's game needs the infrastructure, just like the WNBA has with the NBA, in order for it to bring up its profile and its platform. So I think the All-Star Game, if anything, what it did was show how much that's needed and how much being a part of the NHL brand uh, can help elevate the women's game. And I do think we're going to see that one day. So I was all for it. 
I would have really enjoyed seeing each of those women, because there was four women, each get a spot on the all-star teams within the divisions. I think that would have been the next step, and maybe they'll do that in the end. Because as we know, the all-star game isn't about banging the body. It's about skill. And I would have liked to have seen the women incorporated on each one of those teams, because I think that would have been pretty cool. Oh, man. I would I would watch the heck out of that. That would be incredible. Yeah. <laughs> maybe next year. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. Yeah. Uh, so before we get to talking about the Jets in particular, I just wanted to ask, uh, what's next for you, Leah? What, what's coming next down the pipeline? Next for me? Um, well, there's some exciting things actually coming up for me. One is that we do have the Clarkson Cup coming up in the CWHL schedule. We um, have that at the end of March, so I will be calling that for Sportsnet. I'm really looking forward to that again. Uh, and then, you know, I have a few other things that are coming up that unfortunately I can't talk about right now. <laughs> To be honest, they'll come out in the next couple months. But, uh, you know, things are going really well, and I'm really enjoying myself in this new, you know, role in broadcasting, which um, I have so much to learn in. I really have so much work to do. I've only done, um, you know, seven games, right? So I haven't been doing it forever, but I love it, and I have a true passion for it, and I'm looking forward to the further opportunities that I'm getting through, you know, the work that I've been doing in it. All right, well, uh, you know, I'm a little disappointed we won't get any spoilers from you, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll stay tuned and uh, we'll be listening intently. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the Jets, because I'm sure that's a big part of what our listeners are, are, are here for. Uh, so, uh, in your opinion, uh, what parts of the game are working for the Jets this season? And maybe what isn't working so well as they'd like? Well, I think for the Winnipeg Jets, um, what I really think is working for them is how deep this team is because they are able to roll four lines up front. They have great – sorry, I'm just going to, I'm having a little bit of trouble here with my phone, Alistair, so I'm just going to transfer over here. I apologize about that. Oh, no worries. Sorry about that. Um, no, I think that it's just, you know, the fact that they are so incredibly deep this year is what's working for them because I think we know that any team that's going to go the distance in a playoff run or be a Stanley Cup winner has to be able to roll four lines and have multiple defense pairings working and then also have those players sitting up in the press box, which the Jets do, which they know can be put into the lineup at any time and it will go quite seamlessly and also having some depth down on the farm when need be. So that's what I believe is working well for them. What I would say is not working so well for them, and I hate to keep on this young man, but Patrick Laine has had such a struggle this season. And I feel for him so much because this is a 20-year-old who his entire career, what he's been known for is that shot and his ability to find the net. And when that's not working for you, the confidence level has to be very, very low. And there's only one way to solve it, and that's to start scoring again. And right now, unfortunately, we've seen the streakiness. We've seen the 16 goals in November and then the three in December, the one in January, and he's still looking for one in February. But I will say this about that. When you talk to Paul Maurice, the first thing that Paul Maurice talks about is five-on-five play. The one thing he never talks about is creating offense. And I know from actually firsthand speaking with the Jets coaching staff is that they're not worried about Patrick Lyons. They like what they're seeing from him. He is trying to evolve his game on both sides of the puck. And by doing so, that probably is going to affect his offensive flair. Now, the confidence and the low confidence, I think, is what we're seeing on the power play and his inability to really produce there is because he's 
he's feeling it right now, and that's to be expected. But the coaching staff is very happy with him. They feel for him. They know that this is a struggle. But if he wants to be a great player for the long term, these are the type of struggles that need to happen. We saw this with Alex Sebastian. He's the greatest goal scorer of our generation. But it took him a while to find both sides of his game, and once he did, that helped lead towards the Capitals finally winning a Stanley Cup. So I think the same tale will be told for Patrick Laine, but if there's one thing that's not working for the Jets this season, it's that they're missing his offense. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I would just like to add on a personal note, I do feel like Laine's 5-on-5 plays looked rather strong, especially over the last few games. Even if he's not potting the goals, you know, he seems to be in the right yeah, place at the I mean, right time. It is, and the one thing that the coaching staff will talk about is the strength of Liney, that he has this, at a 20, at 20 years of age, that he's got this great man's strength about him, but he has these incredibly soft hands, which everyone knows is going to play out well for him for the rest of his career, and he is going to be an elite player. But I've spoke about this, too, before, Alistair, is that, you know, people sit here and think, well, he's a second overall pick. Okay, yes, he is, but... We need to really change the narrative about Liney. Liney isn't a generational player. He's not Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid or even Alexander Ovechkin. He's Patrick Liney, and the Jets weren't even supposed to have that kind of a high pick. They lucked into it because of the new way the draft goes and with the percentages. And they got that second overall pick, and it was like, wow, we have a chance to get a great player. But at this point, they have really built this team with so many other type of players, the type of player, player that Kyle Connor is. He's an all-around player. They have multiple players like that, Marchese, Blake Wheeler. It goes on and on and on, you know, Matthew Perot. What they really wanted was goal scoring. So they used that second overall pick to get a goal score. They didn't expect Patrick Laine to come in and be a Mark Shifley or a Blake Wheeler. They brought him in for his goal scoring. And now what they're doing is teaching him, though, too, not to be a defensive liability because he can't be in the NHL. So this is not a player, the typical Austin Matthews, where they felt that he's going to come in and change the franchise. Patrick Laine is a piece to the puzzle. He's not the one who's supposed to lead the way for the Jets. And I think that the fan base has to recognize that and really look into that because the expectations on Laine to be a Mark Scheifele or of Lake Wheeler are not proper. Well, thank you. That's an extremely uh, uh, wise take. As, as you, as you, you bring a, a fascinating perspective to that question. Um, well, it might not be a wise take, but it's my take. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, I stand by you look it. At really, you have to put in perspective to the entire National Hockey League. You know, not everybody is going to be a generational player. And I think too often now when we have these first overall and second overall draft picks, people expect them to be the next Sidney Crosby, and that's just not the case because those players, I think this goes back to the fact that people still don't give the likes of Sidney Crosby the proper respect of how good he is. And when you cover him and you see him on a daily basis, you learn how good he is as a player, and he really is one of the best, if not the best, to play the game. And the same thing with Connor McDavid. So those are generational type players. Even an Austin Matthews is not a generational player just because he's the first overall pick. He's just a really great player. 
So we have to really curve our expectations and start watching the tags that we put on the NHLers. All right. Well, uh, I'd like to to kind of build on this this view of yours of the kind of the NHL as a whole. And at you know, can you, would you mind putting on your GM hat for a moment and uh, let's talk about the trade deadline coming up? Um, who would you target for the Jets? Hmm. Excellent question. Uh, first of all, I'm glad I'm not a general manager at this time of the year, especially in the National Hockey League in the salary cap era. Uh, it's very, very difficult to make trades. I don't know if people really understand how difficult it is to make a hockey trade. Uh, if it, you know, I know that everyone is very, very set on bringing in that second-line center because of how successful it was with Paul Stasny last year and the fact that you can bump a player like Brian Little, who, first of all, does not get nearly enough credit for how friggin' good he is because he's so good. Um, but to be able to bump a player like Brian Little down to your third line is such a luxury, and it just gives the Jets so many options. So I really understand why people would like to see a second-line center brought in. But for me, I think the price tag on a second-line center is too much this year. I really feel that in order to get a Paul Stasny this year, it's not just going to be a first-round pick, which is already a heavy price point for a rental player because you're giving up your development. But the other thing that's making it hard this year, Alistair, is that the Western Conference is so crazy in that bottom half of the teams that are just outside the playoffs. Because those are teams that really don't have a chance. Like the Edmonton Oilers are not going to win the Stanley Cup this year. But they're literally a couple points from being in the playoff race. You know, so are they going to be selling at the trade deadline like they perhaps usually would because they'd be, you know, 10, 15 points out of a playoff spot? The Vancouver Canucks are another one of those teams, the Colorado Avalanche. I don't think that those teams are going to be as willing to let go of their rental players because then it suggests to their fan base that two points, three points out, that they're saying they're not going to make it. And their fan base is going to go, what are you doing? We're right on the doorstep. And then they might not buy the ticket because it said, oh, we're not going. And as we know, at the end of the day, hockey is a business. And you need fans in the seats. So it's a really difficult place this year, especially in the Western Conference, I believe, to make a trade. So I think Sheveldale has his hands full with that. But I really don't necessarily think it has to be a center. I think it has to be a player that can come in and put in some goals for this team and play with some grit and be able to play in all situations. And the reason I say that is because last year, you know, your top six in a playoff round, they get taken away. You almost have to realize that you're not going to get, you're going to get less than half the production they usually do because they're going to be game planned for and they're going to be targeted for. Cups are won in your third and fourth line. So if you can bring in some complementary pieces because of how deep the Jets are, if you could bring in a few complementary pieces on a third, fourth line and not give up tons to get them, I think that that is what I would be looking for in a trade this year. I would like to bring in a 20-goal scorer, a player like a Matthew Perot, really, because, you know, he's not – he can play up and down your lineup, but he's not considered to be one of those top six guys, but he can do everything for you, and he chips in when need be. And that's what I think the Jets need. I personally would love to see Wayne Simmons in a Jets jersey. I think he would be phenomenal. He's going to put in offense for you. He knows what it means to play in the playoffs. He has grit. He's great on the power play in front of the net. He can play in all situations. I've heard that Philly's asking for a first-round pick for him, but 
I don't know if that's it. Um, I do think that to bring in more than a rental player, you're going to have to give a roster player up for that, and I don't know if the Jets are willing to do that. Fair enough. And you're sure that's not just a, a Flyers connection talking? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have an inside track because Ron does not talk to anybody about his hockey world except for the people that need to know. That's one of his rules. Um, I'm just a really big Wayne Simmons fan, and I honestly think if Winnipeg or uh, – he's going somewhere, I think. I do think that Philly, it, even though they're kind of back in the playoff hunt, I think Philly's aware that, you know, this year it's going to be the Tampa Bays of the world that are really going to be – it's going to be really hard to beat them. He's, uh, they don't know if they're going to get him signed, so why not get a first-round pick from him from someone? And heaven forbid he ends up in Nashville, because that would not be great. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, well, you make a compelling case. Um, I just have one final question before we wrap things up here. Uh, do you have any predictions for 2019? Oh, are you asking me if the Winnipeg Jets are going to win the Stanley Cup? Well, hey, those are your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> we have to go out on a limb there, Alistair. Um, no, okay, so my predictions for 2019. Jeez, um, you know, I think the Winnipeg Jets are such a strong hockey club. I, I don't think I've ever, you know, I don't even know if when they came back, and I was there at the press conference, I was working at CTV at the time, and I remember thinking, oh, it's going to take a really long time to get this Atlanta team turned around, and it's going to be hard because attracting free agents to Winnipeg compared to other big league markets is going to be hard. The job that, you know, they have done, I think, is unbelievable. I have been saying this since the start of the season that this is their year. If they're going to win, this is their year. A lot of people are suggesting that their window is just opening, the thing about it is just making the playoffs in the NHL is so hard. We've seen teams that are great teams that have trouble making it because there's so much competition in this league. I mean, look at what happened to the Jets when they just played Ottawa, the last place team, the other day. On any given day, a team can beat another team because the talent level is so close and it's so high, and that's fabulous for the fans. But I really believe that if they're going to go for it and if, this is, if there's a year for them to win a Stanley Cup, that this is it, because next year this team is not going to be able to look the same. When you look at the Caps, when you look at who they have to sign, not only RFAs but UFAs, there's no way this team is going to look the same next year. The good news is, is that they do have depth coming up, and we've seen it down on the farm with the Moose, and they do have a, a nice full cupboard, but it's not going to be the same caliber, I don't think, next season. So for me, I think my prediction, this is a very long-winded way of saying it, is that I don't know if the Jets are quite there to win the Cup yet. I think Tampa's going to be really, really hard to beat. Uh, that is who I picked to win the Cup this year is Tampa Bay. But I do believe the Jets have the ability to do it. And I think that's amazing that Winnipeg owns a hockey club that could win the Stanley Cup. Because I don't know if we've ever been able to say that before. Oh, absolutely. I, my mouth is watering at the idea of a Jets-Tampa final. That, oh, Can you imagine? That... I mean, the hockey <laughs> game that they had just in the regular season was so exciting. So sign me up for seven games of that for the, that silver chalice any day of the week. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Leah. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Uh, any last words? 
Not really, Alistair, I guess, except for Go Jets Go. It's been a really fun season watching them so far, and I'm excited for trade deadline. I can't wait to see if they do something. You never know. They might not. And then I'm excited to see this playoff run. But I wish you guys more success with the podcast, and I enjoy listening. Well, thank you so much. All right, take care. You as well.